Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today, we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today, we've got uh, two new timers to the show that are going to be helping me out with the commentary here. First up, we've got Yuan Ming Chao. He is the social media editor over at the China Post. Uh, Yuan Ming, good to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. What's big in social media over the last week or so? There's been uh, a lot of coverage about the trip that Tsai is taking right now in Central America, but also engaging the audience with um, some viral posts as well about uh, millennials. Um, Ooh, is the Tsai trip getting mostly up thumbs? Is it getting hearts? Is it getting angry faces? What's, what's the trend of the day? It's getting mostly uh, thumbs up. There we go. Thumbs up, also known as thumbs up. Also on the show today, we have Dr. Ian Rowan. He is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Institute of Ethnology at Academia Sinica. Dr. Ian Rowan, thanks for being on the show. Nice to be here, Keith. Now, we've had you on the show by phone once before, but since then, you've racked up an extra title. What is that new title? Uh, Now, an associate researcher at the French Center for Contemporary China. More official than ever. Fantastic. All right, so let's uh, look at the topics that we have for the show today. Uh, we've got a big old jumble of international news as President Tsai Ing-wen makes the rounds in Central America for her second overseas trip as president. Uh, China's carrier fleet continues to roam about the South China Sea th- uh, this week, provocatively entering Taiwan's air defense identification zone. And Nigeria uh, has decided to distance itself even further from Taiwan diplomatically. Uh, So that will be the whole first half of the show. Then in the second half, we'll take a look at KMT politics as three new candidates jump into the chairmanship race. A meeting between new power party lawmakers and pro-localization legislators from Hong Kong, which was marked by raucous protest, allegedly gangster-backed raucous protest. Uh, Ian was there, so he can tell us all about that. And we'll round out the show looking at a couple of tax hikes aimed at funding the Tsai administration's forthcoming Long-Term Care Services Program 2.0. Smokers, you might want to listen to this one because, well, we've got some bad news for you there. But that is all going to have to wait because it is time to head on over to that international front. Of course, President Tsai is rounding out her tour of Central America. This trip has seen her reaffirm ties with Guatemalan President Jimmy Morales. Also saw her attend Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega's inauguration. Uh, Also saw her meet with Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez. And going back just a little bit earlier in the trip, she also stopped over in Houston, Texas. No meeting with Trump, uh, as was rumored very widely before the trip. But I did meet with a number of other Republican politicians, including Texas Senator Ted Cruz and Texas Governor Greg Abbott. So, you know, it's it's a big diplomatic brouhaha. We're all trying to read the tea leaves, especially following the Sao Tome and Princip uh, dropping out of diplomatic ties, trying to figure out exactly what this signals about what the other diplomatic allies are thinking about Taiwan. So no aspect of this trip is too small to scrutinize and try to interpret. Um, I'm always left a little bit cold by these diplomatic trips. I mean, it's just... You know, politicians shaking hands with other politicians don't know what 
so much to make of it, but I'll throw it over to you guys. Is there something to make of this thing? Is there uh, something we should be paying attention to as she kind of rounds out the rest of this? Uh, Ian, I'll toss that to you first. I'm sure. Well, I think it's significant that she's visited four neighbors, uh, that she's she's gone on this trip and managed to visit four different countries and heads of state in them. Uh, it's not just meetings with heads of state, but also a reaffirmation of trade ties. Uh, Taiwan does mm-hmm. have a free trade agreement with Nicaragua. Uh, that was that was emphasized. Also, some of these relationships are longstanding uh, with long-serving heads of state. For example, Ortega. This was his third inauguration. Uh, so Tsai is, Tsai is maintaining this relationship over the long term. Uh, of course, it's significant, too, that she transited in Houston and on her way back will transit in San Francisco where she can meet with yet more U.S. allies and get even more international news about it. Maybe Trump? Maybe Trump? I think Trump's probably going to steer clear from San Francisco mm-hmm. for, for the next year, at least, uh, unless he <laughs> wants massive protests. Not just because of Tsai Ing-wen, yeah. Uh, and that fourth country that you were talking about, there was El Salvador. Uh, it was kind of put on as a tenuous stop on her trip. I don't know whether or not she is going yet. We may not know until this show actually broadcasts, so uh, perhaps our listeners will know more than we do right now. Uh, but let's toss things over to Yuan Ming. Uh, what do you see here? Well, I think um, her trip comes at a very important time, especially after um, Sao, T- Sao Tome, as you mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's this reaffirmation of um, of Taiwan's um, diplomatic space, and also um, as uh, as Ian mentioned, um, these are longstanding ties. And um, I think that um, it was also significant that um, um, all four of these um, the, the ambassadors um, they they saw Tsai went off, and um, and they talked to the media as well about um, the importance of building bilateral um, investment uh, opportunities. And I think, mm-hmm. um, but as Ian said, I think it's also uh, a lot of the the scrutiny of of course has been on these transit stops, right? And um, especially um, coming at a time right before. Uh, Donald Trump takes power. Um, a lot of um, a lot of um, um, analysis and focus will be on you know the triangular relations between uh, Washington, Taipei, and Beijing. Yeah. For example, one of the things that was heavily scrutinized by the media over the last couple of days was an apparently scrapped meeting between Tsai Ing-wen and uh, Heritage Foundation co-founder Edwin Fulner. Uh, those that have followed closely the you know the whole brouhaha behind the uh, Tsai Trump call might know that Mr. Fulner is reported to have played a large role in setting up that call. Apparently, there was supposed to be some kind of meeting between Tsai and Fulner. It was canceled. Uh, allegedly, some folks are saying due to pressure from China, Fulner himself has said that China had nothing to do with it and that he, in fact, still had a phone call with Tsai Ing-wen. So nothing to see here. Um, are, is this just another example of folks trying their best to find a story here, Ian? I, I'd say so. Uh, we can only speculate as to what was behind the, the cancellation. Uh, both Tsai and Fulner are very, very busy people. Uh, I find it hard to believe that Fulner would cancel a trip based on some kind of uh, pressure or fear about China. Uh, mm-hmm. That strikes me as a bit outlandish. Mm-hmm. Um, and if anything, that relationship seems seems to be growing, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. For better or worse? What's the worse? Well, the worse is that in certain ways, Heritage Foundation's general stance, apart from Taiwan's geopolitical space, isn't necessarily the most the strongest fit with other aspects of 
ties domestic policy. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, it's not necessarily the most natural ideological lineup. Uh, and I think we could say the same about Tsai and Trump. Uh, well, also Tsai and a lot of the uh, allies overseas. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and, and, and so you'd mostly be talking about more like economic policies and... Economic and social policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, which, uh, for folks who are not familiar with the Heritage Foundation, are considered fairly far to the right in uh, American politics. Yuan Ming, what, what, what do you see there? Uh, again, over-interpreting this? Well, I think um, there was a lot of media uh, speculation about uh, whether or not she would meet uh, members of the transition team. Mm-hmm. And um, I think she... Um, I think Fulner said that she, she um, they had a conversation, mm-hmm. um, but he said that this was, of course, in a personal capacity, mm-hmm. uh, not as uh, his uh, his role in the the Trump transition team. Um, but um, I think um, other members of um, uh, China Taiwan cross strait watchers analysts um, they 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 think it's. Um, Probably at this time, very good that uh, that you know Tsai's uh, trip transitions are low key. Mm-hmm. Um, they've said that um, it doesn't help at this point. Um, the, the U.S. interests and Taiwan's interests are not advanced by provoking Beijing, mm-hmm. um, and so I think for the most part um, that's what's happened um, um, while she's been transitioning. Yeah. Mm. As best as I can tell, the only peoples whose interests are advanced by provoking Beijing are, uh, at the moment, are U.S. politicians mm-hmm. seeking to score fairly easy points. So, for example, Ted Cruz. For example, Ted Cruz. Uh, or, or, you know, perhaps Rex Tillerson, uh, mm-hmm. the prospective Secretary of State, mm-hmm. uh, you know, also uh, perhaps scoring points by appearing tough on China and the South China Sea. Right. Uh, of course, Ted Cruz actually did meet with Tsai Ing-wen, as we mentioned right there. And uh, let's see what he had to say. He said that... He was asked by China not to meet with Tsai, uh, but then he said, quote, uh, in America, we make decisions about meeting with visitors for ourselves. So fairly, I mean, you know, it's always nice to stand up for Taiwan. But again, like you said, mostly just scoring anti-China points there is, is probably most of what's going on. So in reflecting on this trip that Taiwan has had, pomp, check, circumstance, check, a rousing trip for any leader of state, but unfortunately it was overshadowed, maybe not quite overshadowed, at least, it was at least clouded. Let's say it was clouded by news uh, from a totally different part of the world. Nigeria announced that it would no longer recognize Taiwan as a nation and would cease all diplomatic relations in accordance with the One China Principle. Uh, Of course, Taiwan and Nigeria have never established diplomatic relations, so in practical terms, what this means is that the mission... Taiwan's mission in Abuja has had to move out uh, to uh, another city. And also, Nigerian officials are to be banned from any official contacts with their Taiwanese counterparts. Uh, So sometimes when we see diplomatic allies or countries around the world uh, take a step or two away from Taiwan... It's always suspected that China plays a role, but sometimes it's a little unclear. You know, it's, it's, China often insists, eh, they're just doing that of their own free will. They recognize the one-China policy as any rational person should. This time around, though, uh, that, uh, it's a little bit harder to make that case because the move came right after Chinese Minister of Foreign Affairs Wang Yi, uh, who happened to be in town at the time, pledged to invest 40 billion U.S. dollars into Nigeria's 
infrastructure. So not too hard to connect the dots there. Uh, Ian, how much is this going to matter for Taiwan's place in the world? Um, I, I don't think Nigeria's stuck its neck out for Taiwan diplomatically in the past, so I don't think much will be lost. Uh, in terms of international diplomatic space. Uh, Nigeria, of course, is an incredibly uh, significant country economically uh, mm -hmm. within Africa and really globally. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's full of resources. It uh, punches well above its weight. Um, so that Taiwan is maintaining its mission, even if it's been moved to the commercial rather than political capital, uh, does indicate the, there will be a, some kind of relationship going forward. Mm. Um, what do you see there? Oh, well, I think um, it's mainly... As Ian says, um, um, the, the move, um, Nigeria is an important economic player in Africa. And, and as you said, uh, China is investing billions in Africa for, mm -hmm. for decades. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's a symbolic move also because if you consider how Sao Tome was, uh, is one, uh, you know, just uh, broke off relationship with the ROC um, and uh, Taiwan has two remaining allies in Africa. Mm -hmm. And so this move, while... Tsai Ing-wen is in Central America is saying, look, you're, you're trying to consolidate your diplomatic allies in Central America. Mm -hmm. Here we are in Africa. You know, we've got push here. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I think it's, you know, it's just a continuation of the, the full court press that Beijing has on Taipei right now. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I expect, you know, this to continue. Mm. All right. Well, we can continue this conversation in a second. But let's, uh, let's throw in the third and final piece of international news that came out this week, uh, and maybe we can have just a broader discussion, uh, rounding it all together and looking at where Taiwan-China ties uh, lay currently. So that third and final piece is more on the military front. Taiwan this week scrambled jets and Navy ships uh, as a group of Chinese warships led by Chinese sole aircraft carrier, the Liaoning, sailed north through the Taiwan Strait. Uh, according to Taiwan's defense ministry, the uh, Liaoning uh, aircraft was returning from exercises in the South China Sea, uh, and it actually didn't enter Taiwan's territorial waters, but it did enter that air defense identification zone in the southwest. I'm not clear exactly what air defense identification zones mean for ships. Uh, obviously, for most aircraft, that's the region that's defined where if you enter that region as a commercial or a military aircraft, you need to make your presence known to the country. And they obviously extend outside of the normal territorial air and waters and all that. So uh, that was an interesting escalation. Of course, uh, we've been covering the movements of the Liaoning. Uh, we talked about it last week on the show as well. Uh, but now it seems like they're pushing the boundaries even a little bit more, uh, kind of going... They headed north a little bit. They went through the Taiwan Strait, uh, and uh, I think by Wednesday morning they had exited uh, any ADIZ or territorial waters or anything like that. So uh, already out, already on their way. Uh, but, Ian, is this something that uh, we should be troubling our mind with at all? Uh, I think this is easy to blow out of proportion. It's not the first time the Liaoning's gone through the Taiwan Strait. Uh, it went through in 2013, just one mm -hmm. year after it was commissioned. There's really two ways it could go if it wants to go down to the South China Sea. It can go through the Taiwan Strait, or it can go closer to Japan. Mm -hmm. Either way, someone's going to get slightly upset. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they did, uh, China did um, pull its punches. If it wanted to be really provocative, it could have crossed into territorial waters, which would have produced some kind of military incident. As it was, uh, it was a fairly low-key uh, passage. Um, I think it's easy to get worried about it when there's all, 
all these other things happening, you know, mm-hmm. in Nigeria and elsewhere. It's easy to blow this out of proportion. Mm. Guan Ming, I see you nodding along. Yeah, I agree. Um, as, as Ian said, you know, this is actually the, the third time because it, it went down mm. through the strait mm-hmm. up again, and now it's, you know, it went around. So mm-hmm. it's the third time since 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what uh, analysts, including um, uh, Ministry of National Defense, they were, they were comparing the, you know, the, the movement with before, and they said uh, what made a difference this time was it moved a lot slower. Mm. Um, um, and they think that this was uh, also to have a psychological effect, you know, with people spinning it and maybe. Um, but, but of course, you know, Taiwan, uh, China's um, um, Taiwan Affairs Office, they were very low key about this. They said, you know, this was you know, part of uh, its return trip from, you know, military exercises in the South China mm-hmm. Sea. Um, but in Taiwan, if you notice, you know, the, the day it passed through the, you know, on the ADIZ, and, you know, the stock markets, you know, it actually, the stock markets, it took no effect. And mm. if you consider, you know, China's more provocative moves in the past, mm-hmm. you know, they, they created quite a bit of tumult. But I think the Taiwanese population has, you know, gotten used to this. Mm. Um, and if we, if we also put it in the context of timing, um, another thing was, you know, they could have moved this um, closer to Tsai Ing-wen's uh, return back. Mm-hmm. That would have been a bit more provocative, but they're moving it a bit, you know, they, they decided to move it a bit, you know, ahead of that. Um, I th- and um, it, you know, lo- logistically speaking, you know, moving it through the western half of the Taiwan Strait, it's closer to the base in China mm-hmm. um, and is somewhat less provocative because it be- because that passage is a lot quicker. And, mm. and I believe China, had, at least they claimed recently, they planned this as early as September. So again, this shouldn't come as a huge surprise. Mm. All right. So, I mean, let's see. We're, we're what? We're about maybe 20 minutes into the show. And so far, I'm hearing a lot of blasé, uh, you know, nothing to see here sort of comments. Uh, he- here I am doing my uh, job as a, uh, a media muckraker trying to make a big deal out of everything. And you guys are saying, nah, basically, uh, th- 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 this is a continuation of a lot of trends we've seen going on for a long time and not a huge escalation. Uh, but let's, I mean, let's just like, kind of look at it you know on the diplomatic front we we clearly uh, see a little bit of a setback for taiwan there on the military front we see uh you know if, if not necessarily an escalation at least movement there so i mean is there is there a broader context uh, that we should put this in uh, for the directions of uh, cross-strait relations well i mean i think the since we're uh, we just uh, talked about the liaoning i i, I don't i do want to emphasize that um China is sending a signal. Um, it is a, a political uh, statement that it's, you know, that it also wants to send a message to the United States, um, also uh, other claimants within the South China Sea, uh, kind of like, uh, you know, this is our backyard. Um, um, we're moving through this as as uh, as we as we want. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you know. A lot of this um, posturing, of course, is coming at a very important time because we also have to look at what happens in, you know, after January 20th mm-hmm. um, um, as the new administration in the U.S. Um, comes to power. 
um, what does um, what are uh, how does long-standing policies towards the on on one China will they continue or um, will we will we be able to see that? I think mm. this is something that we have to to also observe. Yeah. yeah. So still kind of in a wait and see period. Yeah, and I would I would take issue with uh, characterizing the recent week as a diplomatic setback for Taiwan. I mean, we've seen that we've seen that in Nigeria. Uh, we 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 could we could ad- admit that. But in terms of consolidating relationships with Latin America, uh, in terms of also building new relationships with powerful politicians in the U.S., um, I, I'd say that those. Uh, more than balance out uh, the the moving of a commercial mission to a commercial city. Mm. All right. So that is the take on this tumultuous week. I'm going to stick with tumultuous. A tumultuous week in international politics uh, for Taiwan and its various relations. But we are coming up on a break now, so we're going to have to leave all of that tumult. Time to move away from international news. Uh, And when we return to the show, well, the KMT have their own fight brewing as the fight over the party's chairmanship takes shape. Uh, Ian is going to tell us all about that meeting between NPP lawmakers, Hong Kong lawmakers, and a rowdy mob. And smokers, we didn't forget about you. Uh, We got that bad news coming your way. So that's all coming up when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Ian Rowan and Yuan Ming Chao. Jumping back in, and we're going to take a look at what's going on in the KMT. Haven't actually looked at that in a while. Uh, of course, they faced a bit of a drubbing in last year's election and in the election before that. Uh, so, of course, it's been led uh, ever since then by its erstwhile presidential nominee, Hong Shouju. You know, like, short-lived presidential nominee, of course. But many uh, think that she is out of touch with Taiwan's mood. Uh, She's received criticism even from within her own party for pushing for closer ties with China uh, than many are comfortable with. So as the May 20th race for party chairmanship approaches, it has been long expected that her hold on the leadership would be challenged. This week we saw who is going to be doing some of that challenging uh, as a number of contenders threw their hat in the ring. So, let's run through that list in order of announcement. On Saturday, KMT Vice Chairman and former Taipei Mayor Hao Longbin was the first to do so, coming out swinging, uh, how so that while he admired Hong for leaving the party during its most difficult time, he added that he has also seen the party on a downhill course. Later in the week, former Vice President Wu Duan-e uh, officially announced his decision to run for the post. Uh, Wu, went, Wu went on to say his primary goal is to return the KMT to power in 2020 and establish a politically clean and efficient government and legislature and to ensure peaceful cross-strait ties. So, uh, some hefty pledges there from Mr. Wu Duan-e. And then just yesterday, uh, the field opened to four contenders, including Hong Shouju herself, uh, when former Taipei Agricultural Products Marketing Corp. President Huang Kuo-yu announced his candidacy. Uh, the former three-term lawmaker proposed that the KMT put a, uh, all of its assets into a trust uh, and deal with related issues through a legal process. So that's what we're hearing from him. Uh, I, I, I really liked some of the photos that came out from his announcement. Uh, there was one photo in particular of him 
embracing uh, a large pile of cabbages, much as he plans to embrace the Taipei people, the Taiwan people, excuse me. Uh, so if you guys can include uh, any produce-based puns in your analysis of uh, Mr. Han's announcement, uh, bonus points right there. Okay, so it's been a heady week for KMT politics. A lot of names, a lot of faces to uh, reacquaint ourselves with as those politics get going. Uh, Ian, what are you holding in your mind as this uh, new chairmanship uh, election heats up? Uh, I suppose the KMT is using a carrot-and-stick approach. Ah! <laughs> Two points to Gryffindor. All right. <laughs> continue, continue. Uh, throwing out, um, you know, the, the appealing... Um, oh, what Hong Xiuju herself is the, the, the little chili pepper. There we go. Uh, there we go. This, uh, these jokes write themselves. <laughs> And then uh, I suppose how I'm being here is uh, is using the stick of uh, of, of perdition and uh, talking about the imminent demise of the KMT, which which I think we'd have to admit is is looking uh, looking ever more true. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I I think in this crop of four contenders, mm-hmm. um, there's not much to to pick from. Mm. Not much to pick from. All right. So do you think that Ian got to the root of the problem there? <laughs> I think. Um some of these uh, candidates, um, they, they're looking to harvest uh, 2018 um, because those elections are coming up, the local ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the field is, um, right now it's four, but I, I've heard that uh, Steve uh, Chan, mm-hmm. uh, vice chair, uh, former vice chairman, KMT, um, is considering a run and will announce uh, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But um, just to add is um, about this chairmanship election, I, I think this is um, the KMT is at the cusp of some um, very um, potentially fractious uh, moments because this is... Oh, there wasn't a pun there. I'm sorry. I, th- I heard a pun where there wasn't. I thought you were going to say at the husk of a... But anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm, the husk. I'm turning beet red myself. Yeah, well, yeah. We're having way more fun with this than our listeners probably are. Anyway, continue. It's just that the, um, the run for um, chairmanship, unlike last year, um, involves uh, more heavyweights such mm-hmm. as... Uh, uh, Hao and Wu, yeah, mm-hmm. um, and um, Hao, Wu, and Hong—they're all running on this whole Jing Guo Pai, this Jing uh, Jiang Jing Guo, the former uh, president. Um, uh, they're running on, you know, uh, returning to his vision, mm. and um, and Wu Denyi when he declared his uh, his ca- uh, his candidacy, you know, he got really emotional. He was also, you know, tearing up at the mention of Sun Yat Sen. So um, I think. Uh, What's interesting about uh, 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 Han Guoyu is that he wants, you know, you know, this hugging of the cabbage is, you know, trying to get in touch with, you know, the grassroots, um, and he he pins his candidacy on this on on this message really resonating. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, and he he also brought up the party assets issue, which is uh, clearly. Uh, going further towards reconciliation with the DPP than we've heard from Hong Shouju so far. Yeah, I, I think his approach, um, he wants to s- just say, look, we should, you know, cut that tether mm-hmm. uh, and work from, um, work, you know, with the new, um, with the new um, future, you mm-hmm. know, once that, that part is cast off. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, this will be um, very, very, um, contentious with uh, how the party will, will decide on how um, it deals with that, as mm. we've already seen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ian, what do you see there? Um, it's nice to hear some some less familiar voices in the KMT, uh, mm-hmm. the people that are 
posing more serious challenges to Hong. Uh, Hao Bean, uh, we you know we've known for years uh, as mayor of Taipei and recent failed candidate for a, a Geelong legislative seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, a, a, a major upset in what mm-hmm. should have been a, a very safe seat for for a KMT heavyweight and Princeling, uh, mm-hmm. being the son of uh, former premier uh, and general Hao Boatsun. Mm. Uh, so. To go from being a failed legislative candidate to then attempting to seize back the KMT, I, I find um, I find uh, somewhat far fetched. Uh, mm-hmm. For Wu Duengyi as a former vice president, uh, and and again someone who's been circling the KMT for years, um, to talk about cleaning up the KMT uh, is also is also uh, a bit fanciful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's hard to see what. Any of these KMT voters uh, within the party for this chairmanship are are doing apart from playing out old nostalgia or holding on to whatever might be left of a party that still has significant, if not liquid assets, uh, mm-hmm. connections to other kinds of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard to see them turning around in time for any any significant um, election showing in 2020 at this rate. So do you see any significant difference between the three most likely candidates? I mean, if Hong wins, if Wu wins, if Hao wins, would that mean something significantly different for the prospects of the KMT? Uh, they're appealing to slightly different constituencies, uh, Wu not being from an old mainlander family, for example, mm-hmm. uh, whereas Hong and Hao uh, being mainlanders, but also with very different class backgrounds. The, those three represent fairly different, uh, at least uh, personal directions the KMT could go in. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't see ideologically uh, a, a huge rift out of that apart from a more uh, China-focused versus a more Taiwanese-focused direction. Uh, mm-hmm. But given the way the KMT went the last time they elected uh, an ethnic Taiwanese uh, chair, uh, I find it hard to see someone like Wu thriving when uh, the KMT voting base, the, the party voting base, is still composed of mostly old soldiers and people who are much more China-identified. Mm. Uh, would you agree with most of that? Uh, we're, we're, we're not likely to see a huge switch in tone uh, over the next couple of months? Yeah, um, uh, I was uh, noticing uh, who was at uh, Wu Dunyi's uh, announcement uh, when he announced his candidacy. And mm-hmm. um, I noticed that uh, Liao Guodong was there. And I think that's significant because um, Hong Xiuzhu's uh, chairman, uh, uh, chairmanship has been, you know, she's kind of been a placeholder. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the the uh, the big the heavyweights, you know, they've kept out of the race, or you know, they've adopted a wait and see approach. But and, and so her leadership has been fractured by the fact that she hasn't been able to consolidate the KMT's limited presence in the legislature. Um, and with uh, Liao Guodong as the party whip being at Wu Dunyi's, um announcement. I think that signals that uh, at least uh, some of the legislators are behind him. And so that might give um, party supporters some, you know, some hope that maybe this person can can get the party at least unified on some some issues. Um, we've seen the party split um, on tactics, especially on that um, uh, nuke food referendum mm. um, uh, involving the the food imports from Japan, right. um, Halong being trying to, you know, round up the referendum of mm-hmm. signatures, and Hong Shouzhou, you know, trying to a uh, different approach. It seemed like two-headed dragon, two-headed right. lizard, trying an, uh, an impeachment strategy for uh, lawmakers that signed on to uh, allowing those food imports in. Um, so, right. So obviously, Hong Shouzhou was an interesting choice after a major uh, DPP victory. 
uh, especially given that she takes a radically different tone on cross-strait issues from the DPP does. So if, you know, the DPP was the more popular direction for Taiwan's future, it was interesting to see the KMT go uh, stick with that direction. Uh, do you think that there, uh, Ian, do you think that there is room with, uh, you, you already mentioned that the voting base uh, skews really heavily towards uh, the, the soldier corps, uh, and, and that would obviously sort of tend towards a deeper blue kind of mentality. Do you think that the KMT has any room to get more in touch with uh, a more local uh, bent to it, or, or is that kind of a lost cause at this point? Uh, I can see a lot more infighting within the KMT than, than effective outreach to members beyond its caucus, or even even uh, among different ideologically positioned people within the own party. So mm-hmm. I, I find it unlikely that they're going to reach out or uh, localize significantly beyond downplaying the more uh, China or mainlander, uh, more explicit China or mainlander identified aspects of their party. Mm. For example, we're seeing something of a shift in their campaign messaging where their posters and billboards uh, even minimize the KMT logo. Mm. It's harder to see them. They still use blue colors. Uh, they, they, they still have the words here and there. But there might be more of a distancing in the local elections coming up where the candidates actually distance from the party. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see the party core moving in a, a substantially different direction, though, in the, in the next year or two. Mm. So what, what does this mean for the future of the party? If they're not even standing by their own branding, if they're losing uh, significantly their, their funding sources because of uh, the, the assets committee, I mean, is this a party that's going to be viable over the next couple of years? What, obviously, I'm asking you for to, pre- to predict the future, but maybe a better way to look at this is what are you going to be looking out for uh, even following this ele- chairmanship election? Well, clearly, KMT lawmakers and officials have relationships uh, not just within uh, the legislature or within um, particular elected agencies within Taiwan, but also with other other parts of the bureaucracy, both within Taiwan and in China. So KMT membership, uh, KMT access opens up all kinds of doors that are still useful to people who are willing to play that game. Mm-hmm. That having been said, I don't see them being electorally viable for the next few years, at least, if ever. Mm. Uh, Yuan Ming, uh, we, we, closing thoughts, would you have anything to add to that? Well, I think the, the whole election... Um puts at the forefront the challenges of the KMT's reform process. Um, mm-hmm. Hong Shouzhou came out in 2015 promising reform, but um, she got hit with uh, unity problems, uh, solidarity problems. And, um, you know, when I went to a central standing committee meeting uh, of, of recent time, they, they've opened those to the to the media now, full, um, the full session. Um, you can see those um, differing opinions uh, being aired out without... Um, any form of how they could be consolidated. And uh, speaking about the whole uh, military uh, veterans branch, this Huang Fuxing uh, part of the party that's very powerful, um, the party can't agree um, on how those delegates will be elected. Um, and they're pushing back those reforms until 2020. So I think this is a party that is going to have trouble if it can't uh, come up with a, a very fast plan to prioritize its reformation. Hmm. All right. So the big decision is coming up on May the 20th. We're obviously going to see a lot of politicking between here and there. Uh, And uh, when the day arrives, of course, uh, we are going to learn whose political fortunes will blossom and who will have to leaf. Up next, uh, here's one way to make your next boring meeting a little more exciting. Invite a rowdy mob to it. Over the weekend, visiting Hong Kong lawmakers and some Taiwan legislators were holding a weekend forum on civic and social movements. 
lawmaking, and democracy. The two-day forum was, of course, hosted by the New Power Party, uh, which invited the participation of three members of Hong Kong's Legislative Council and uh, pro-democracy activist Joshua Wong. Uh, protesters, though, amassed on the proceedings. Uh, those protesters included dozens of people who gathered outside the meeting place. That was on Songjiang Road in Taipei. Uh, and even earlier than that, even before the meeting was held, uh, when the delegates just arrived at Taoyuan International Airport, uh, after midnight, they were confronted by more than 100 protesters, uh, believed to be associated with the pro-unification Patriot Association. And those guys were quite aggressive, Apparently, several were wearing masks and black clothes, and they rushed towards the lawmakers uh, and created quite a little bit of a ruckus uh, that needed police intervention at the airport. There is some belief that uh, there are gangster elements to this rowdy mob, or at least some kind of a gangster connection. Uh, Ian, you were actually at this meeting over the weekend. Uh, Tell us uh, what you saw there. Uh, Well, I saw uh, several hundred people, some familiar faces from the Taipei 101 protests um, led by the uh, so-called concentric, what is it, concentric patriotic association of the Republic of China. Mm -hmm. Uh, People that we'll see at Taipei 101 or Ximanding demonstrating against Falun Gong, uh, Mm. who are often sitting there meditating uh, or leafleting. Um, so we we know these people. We, we've seen them at Taipei 101. They they came en masse uh, to the airport uh, and then to this forum uh, uh, at Nanjing Fuxing, so kind of a very central part of Taipei. And it wasn't just their usual van uh, blasting patriotic ROC or PRC songs. They also brought several hundred people uh, who seem to have ties with the Bamboo Union uh, or possibly the, the Sihai Bang as well. So a couple of different gangster fractions that tend to be a bit more mainlander or China-focused. Uh, they shoved and jostled. They shouted curses. They wished death upon uh, everyone's entire family. Uh, their their loud phones, their loudspeakers uh, blared both in front of the building and could be heard within the building during the forum on a Saturday afternoon. Mm-hmm. There was a gigantic police cordon outside. They would ask everyone entering where they were going. Um, there was an escort for the members of the of the uh, the forum. Um, both uh, the lawmakers as well as their aides mm-hmm. uh, re- required this. Uh, in fact, some Taiwan activists, including Lin Feifan, who are used to having, uh, you know, contentious from time to time relations with the police, were very pleased to be cooperating with the police and said as much. Uh, well, I, I guess this is one time where the police were there when you needed them. So uh, they were mostly contained, though, outside of the proceedings? Yeah, they didn't actually enter the building. They, mm-hmm. were, they were kept out. And I think it's just as well. I think, I think that the staging uh, was not meant so much to disrupt the forum mm-hmm. uh, as to draw attention to, um, to the protesters themselves mm-hmm. uh, and, and also to then play that back to Hong Kong newspapers and media outlets. Mm-hmm. So we saw the next day uh, longtime pro-Beijing outlets, Wen Weipo and so on, in Hong Kong report that uh, Taipei residents protested against these so-called Hong Kong independence activists. Mm-hmm. There was no mention of the identity of the protesters, that, mm-hmm. they, that they were linked to these these groups with very, very questionable ties to gangsters and questionable ties to collaborators within Hong Kong or within China. Uh, mm-hmm. th- this was simply portrayed in Hong Kong, those particular outlets, as uh, as Taiwan residents didn't mm-hmm. welcome Hong Kong independence activists. Mm-hmm. What makes this even more ironic is that the people that they were protesting against are among the more moderate members of Hong Kong's uh, younger pan-democratic uh, political movements. They're not calling for Hong Kong independence. Mm-hmm. They're not 
aligned with necessarily what's called the localist camp. They're really pushing for democracy, and instead of calling for independence, they call for self-determination. In fact, this line was so moderate that some NPP lawmakers, including Xu Yongming, expressed their own disappointment. They thought this would be some kind of grand link-up between independence forces on both sides. Mm. And that's not what happened, at least not out loud. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what happened beyond, you know, the brouhaha and the protesting and all that. uh, You actually sat through this meeting, scintillating stuff going on. Uh, I'd say so there were two sessions. Um, The Saturday afternoon session was a meeting between aides. Mm -hmm. So these were aides from both the NPP uh, as well as aides from the Hong Kong lawmaker side. So Mm -hmm. it included aides to Nathan Wah, who's uh, the youngest legislator ever elected in Hong Kong history uh, with Democisto. Uh, and, and Nathan Law being a close collaborator with Joshua Wong, who was also in that session. Mm-hmm. Joshua Wong being uh, the, the highest profile of these young democracy activists in Hong Kong, but who is not actually an elected lawmaker because he was not old enough to run in the last election. Mm-hmm. So it was Nathan Law, uh, and then aides to um, uh, Eddie Zhu, who's a longtime environmental activist in Hong Kong, uh, who's actually the top vote-getter in his election, uh, surprising everyone in Hong Kong. Mm. Uh, so his aide, uh, as well as an aide to uh, Edward Yu, who's a professor at Chinese University of Hong Kong, uh, who's recently also been threatened to, to not take office. Um, there have been a whole lot of machinations in Hong Kong's legal scene to keep people that are not pro-Beijing from actually taking elected office. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the meetings between the A's... This is the part of the show where you'd want to be able to curse, to be able to uh, re- repeat some of the reasons for uh, why some of those lawmakers were not allowed to take their seat. But anyway, go on. Indeed. So the, the, I would have to say that the, the meeting between the aides was... was fairly boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and having those gangsters outside certainly livened up things. Uh, it, ke- it kept cameras coming in and out of the, the, the forum. Mm-hmm. Uh, having uh, Lin Feifan, who had picked up some of these people at the airport, um, having him in the room also kept the kind of the star power um, there. And I was actually sitting next to him throughout that forum, and, and cameras kept coming up and, and trying to sneak in close-ups. Did you make it on the news? Uh, I, I stayed out of the cameras as oh, much okay. as I could, yeah, <laughs> as usual. Uh, uh, yeah. Pulling the strings from the shadows. I like it. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, For- foreign influences. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that sort of brings me to uh, my next point. Not, I guess China wouldn't consider it foreign, but they have raised uh, a lot of concerns about, uh, from their perspective, uh, they you know would see pro-localization forces, as you said, this was not exactly an example of pro-localization forces, but they would see any link-up between folks in Taiwan and uh, folks in Hong Kong as potentially threatening, and they have made public statements to that effect, basically warning against Taiwan trying to agitate folks in Hong Kong to that effect. Uh, so, Yuan Ming, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh, would you s- see this uh, as something that might be provocative uh, in cross-strait relations, this meeting? Well, I mean... If we look at it from the perspective of these are two, um, a a meeting between civic organizations and uh, people-to-people contact uh, across the Taiwan Strait. This is, um, you know, a a living, the living proof that um, cross-strait relations at the people-to-people level are are growing and are are burgeoning, and and it just happens to be uh, viewpoints that Beijing doesn't like. But um, these ties are, you know, whether ties that Beijing likes or ties that Beijing doesn't like, um, they're occurring because um, those ties um, are are growing year by year, whether it's by the traffic between, you know, uh, people or goods. Um, it's a it's a trend that that can't really be stopped. Mm. Um, and I think Beijing 
you know, of course they're 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 quite close minded about this, but if if they see it as a as a form of you know interaction between uh, between peoples, I think um, I don't think um, they need to really overreact. Mm. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. I think if Beijing was taking a, a, a longer term view of the the cultural and linguistic link up here, I mean the fact that a forum was being held in Mandarin with Hong Kong lawmakers in Taiwan. Uh, when when Si Wailung, the chief executive of Hong Kong, delivered an address in Mandarin, mm. it startled all of Hong Kong, which saw it as a as a, as a way to, to to kiss up to Beijing. Mm-hmm. Whereas you have people uh, coming from Hong Kong who are very pro Hong Kong, pro democracy, speaking in Mandarin in Taiwan. This mm. couldn't have been done even 15 years ago. The, the lawmakers of that generation couldn't speak decent enough Mandarin to hold a forum like that. So Beijing could cynically spin this as, hey, look, it's just different parts of our, our great Chinese territory linking up. Mm. Isn't that nice? Mm-hmm. They don't do that. Instead, they, they indirectly seem to support gangsters, uh, and they criticize any politician that they can't buy out. So it's, it strikes me as, um, as, as uh, an unsettling uh, example of, of things that will probably worsen uh, in the coming years uh, without any kind of change on the Beijing side. All right. Well, we will let that be the last point for that story and move on to our last story for the broadcast. And here is the bad news for smokers. Actually, we've got some good news for seniors here. So I guess that would be kind of a mixed news for smoking seniors. Let's start with the good news. Long-Term Care Services Program 2.0 is moving into action. That is, of course, the policy behind the Tide Administration uh, to make available more local resources uh, for senior care. But, of course, more resources means you got to pay for it. Here's how they're going to pay for it. Earlier this week, the legislature approved amendments to the Long-Term Care Services Act that will increase taxes on cigarettes by 20 NT per pack. So take that, smokers. Also, kind of bad news for rich people as well, especially rich dead people, uh, the gift and inheritance tax rates are to increase from 10% to a maximum of 20%. So that's two hiked taxes that we're seeing going into effect there. Uh, of course, probably, I mean, even we've mostly been reporting this week, uh, if you follow the news, most of the reports have been more focusing on the increase in taxes on the cigarettes. But really, I mean, the story here is more about the long-term uh, services program lurching into effect. It was kind of had a pre- preliminary round that already began last year uh, with some locales kind of rolling out these uh, sorts of services for seniors. Uh, of course, the broader broader context here is the fact that Taiwan is facing uh, extreme demographic shifts in terms of an aging population, uh, and this is the Thai administration's move to, at least in some ways, deal with that. Uh, so before we get onto the smoker's tax, and we do want to get onto the smoker's tax, Sorry, guys. Uh, Yuan Ming, uh, what are your thoughts on this uh, Long-Term Care Services Program 2.0? Of course, it's supposed to update the 1.0 version of that. Uh, what, do you, what do you expect to come out of all this? Well, it's a really important component of, as you said, of uh, Tsai Ing-wen's administration's her, uh, social policy mm-hmm. uh, agenda. And, of course, it's been largely overshadowed by you know recent uh, squabbles over pension reform and mm-hmm. uh, the work week reforms. Right. Um, but if you look at the, the budget... Um, uh, the amount of the budget being allocated to senior care this year, um, 17.8 billion NT, mm. and that's compared to 6.7 billion in 2016. So it's a huge emphasis. Um, and so the, getting the funding is a very important component um, to uh, maintaining the senior care 
But um, funding is um, part of the the equation, but it also faces other challenges. Um, How are you going to um, get the manpower for um, these services? Um, Who will be in charge of the training? Um, uh, Will it be affordable? And is the the care egalitarian? So I think the funding hurdle, um, that part is somewhat... uh, solved with this uh, smoker's tax. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are a lot of questions about um, how senior care can be sustainable Mm -hmm. that we have to continue observing. Mm. Uh, so, so in general, just to uh, explain to our listeners a little bit, I'm not I'm not super familiar with exactly how this policy is going to work. Just based on what I've read in the newspapers, the idea is you have three levels of care centers or service centers. You have the premier level. Uh, with one center in every city, you have the slightly more localized level that's going to be something like a supermarket or like a, a, a big area where you can get whatever care services or products you need. Uh, that's going to be in each, I think it's like middle school area, so sort of going by school districts. And then going one further down, you have like these really, really local kind of depots for uh, supplies, uh, and those are going to be within every three wards. Uh, anything you would add to that? What, what are the particular services uh, that you've read about that you think are going to matter most? Well, I think um, the part of the uh, 2.0 that differs from 1.0 is the government, the DPP government, wants to make um, senior care like an industry mm. within its own. Um, mm-hmm. And that'll require, you know, downstream, midstream, upstream type of services, as you mentioned. And um, I think this will this market um, is one way of looking at uh, care. Mm -hmm. Um, But is it the only way that we should look at it? Uh, Mm -hmm. Because when you're talking about allocating um, lots of money in this way, um, um, is access um, um, affordable across the line? Mm -hmm. Um, And as you mentioned before, um, Taiwan's demographic is shifting um, to a very rapidly aging society. And... um, and uh, couples are marrying at a very, you know, later age now. And so um, this whole idea of one breadwinner, you know, one person at home or two breadwinners, um, this will make, I think, uh, this, this care, senior care will be a big component um, of people's uh, budgets. Mm. And will there be enough support policies um, to match that? Um, will be a question that we have to ask. Mm, yeah, really, really gigantic, looming challenge. Um, definitely a lot of ways that uh, Taiwan is going to need to adapt to this. Uh, are, 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 I'm not a big watcher of daytime TV. Would you say that there's currently enough TV for old people in Taiwan? The U.S. does gangbusters on this. We have, like, the Golden Girls. We have game shows that go back, like, 30 years. We have Jeopardy. I mean, we really, we're, we're, we're doing pretty well. Uh, do either of you guys, are you familiar with the daytime TV situation in Taiwan? You know, of course, we all uh, have the news programs about people's broken washing machines. That's, that is solid entertainment. Yeah, yeah that's solid programming. Dog caught in the closet. Mm-hmm. You know, people can watch that on Endless Loop. Okay. All right. That, that'll fill the gap for now. I think, I think Taiwan's going to need to up its game in that regard just, just a little bit. Uh, getting back to this uh, cigarette tax, um, so just to dig down into it a little bit, the way that it's going to work, and the only reason that I think that this is kind of interesting is because cigarettes are quite cheap in Taiwan currently. 
Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see whether or not this uh, has any kind of an impact on the demand uh, for cigarettes. So currently there's uh, an 11.8 NT tax on cigarettes. This new tax is going to hike it to 31.8. Uh, and, you know, when when a normal pack of cigarettes is what, like 100 NT, 200 NT, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not super high. Uh, this, you know, this is a fairly significant increase. Uh, Ian, you, 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 you don't seem to be a fan of the smokers based on what you've said off, uh, off mic. Uh, I wouldn't say I, I'm not a fan of smokers, but I'm certainly not a fan of cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And if the tax was hiked to 200 and a pack, uh, I think my life wouldn't, wouldn't be any worse for it. Mm-hmm. Um, that having been said, you know, for those smokers who are of lower income brackets, uh, this, this hit may be felt, um, uh, more, more severely. Well, it's a very regressive tax. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think it's actually remarkable how, how... Taiwan has successfully reduced smoking without raising taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the kind of thing that, that other countries might want to take a, a deeper look at. All right. Well, we're going to leave that story there for today. Obviously, uh, some, a topic that we're going to need to take up again uh, throughout the year as this policy really kicks into action. Uh, But now we're going to move on to our final story. Of course, this is the podcast bonus story. Uh, And today we're going to be talking about a little bit of a snafu that uh, Taiwan's pharmaceutical industry has run into. The Food and Drug Administration uh, recently held an an examination of many products. They looked at uh, 202 pharmaceutical items, uh, and of these, all of which, uh, they were sold illegally as medicines, but 144 of these items were found to contain unlicensed pharmaceutical ingredients. So, for example, among the 202 items examined last year, 82 claimed to be aphrodisiacs, 32 of those were said to be nitrates, while 88 uh, claimed to have other therapeutic effects such as weight loss, anti-inflammatory, or sleep-inducing properties. Uh, The FDA said that they found 61 of the 82 illegal aphrodisiacs contained unlicensed pharmaceutical ingredients, while 48 contained sildenafil, commonly known as Viagra. So this is this the only reason this is kind of a puerile story and I'm sorry to bring it to you guys but the only reason that it caught my attention is because this issue of lacing Chinese medicine with western products is actually it it it's it's gone back for some time now it it seems that if you can't get the Chinese medicine to work you might just slip in some western medicine you know a couple painkillers in there to up its punch a little bit in this case uh the aphrodisiacs uh Maybe weren't working as well as they were hoping they were, so slip in a little Viagra, and now it works just fine. But the FDA is on the case. They're looking into it. They're tracking down these various products. Maybe we'll see some reform of uh, the Zhongyi, the various uh, Chinese medicine industries. I'm not going to ask you if you guys have partaken of the uh, medicines in question. You don't need to get super specific, but uh, just out of curiosity in general, uh, Ian, are you a partaker of Chinese medicine? Uh, Indeed I am. Oh, okay. Uh, and does it shock you to learn that there may be uh, illicit medicines laced within some of those products? Uh, not one bit, but I will say that the the Chinese medical products that I've used tend to be uh, uh, brewed in teas. Um, mm. You know, I, I can't I can't say whether or not they've been sprinkled with Viagra powder along the way. Well, uh, you'd but, know. Yeah. I would imagine you would know. <laughs> Um, that that would be the sort of thing where if you have adverse side effects lasting more than four hours, that's when you would call a hospital. But, but, but you know, given given the price of seeing a Chinese medical doctor in Taiwan mm-hmm. under health insurance, 
Mm-hmm. I'd have to say that's probably the cheapest way to get Viagra these days. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a pro tip to our listeners out there, if you were looking for that sort of pro tip. Uh, Yuan Ming, are you a partaker of Chinese medicine? I've, I've taken some in the past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And does, uh, are these revelations shocking to you? Um, I think they've happened before. Mm-hmm. Um, I, this might just be tip of an iceberg. I mean, mm. um, tip of the iceberg yeah. could be. Yeah. Just the tip. Just the, just, just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> no more than that. Well, uh, we won't pry too much more. Uh, into the uh, medical minutia of our guests on the show uh, because we do want them to come back to the show. Uh, but on that note, uh, we're actually going to have to round things out. That is it for the show today. Please do join us again next time. Time when this week broadcast every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100. That's around about 8.15 every Friday evening. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, a couple of other places as well. If you listen to podcasts, you know where to find us. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined for the very first time by Ian Rowan. Thank you, Ian. All right, glad to be here. And by Yuan Ming Chao. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all for listening, and see you again next time on Taiwan This Week. <laughs>